The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Hey everyone, my name is Mike. Uh, I get the chance to work here uh, with the Inn, and it is my pleasure tonight uh, to introduce you to our speaker for the evening. I'm quite excited about tonight. Uh, Chris Sherman uh, is is one of our interns here, and Chris is a guy, once you know him, actually from the first time uh, you meet him, you learn two things about Chris really quick. One is that he's from Spokane. Okay, and that's really easy. You can't miss it. I mean, he's a rugged, outdoors guy. You know, a lot of facial hair, works out a lot. You go, obviously, he's from Spokane. And the second part is the dude has kind of a, a closet nerd side, even. I mean, he's always wearing T-shirts that have comics on him. He's got a big Marvel Comics poster up uh, in his, you know, at his desk. And uh, always wearing Lord of the Rings stuff or things like that, which obviously has Spokane written all over it. <laughs> but the second thing... You'll notice about uh, Chris really quick is just his heart for people, his heart for anyone. In fact, I can't even narrow it down to any certain group of people. Uh, Chris serves a lot locally in our own community. He first went on deputation a couple years ago to Bethlehem. Last summer, he spent uh, summer in Tajikistan. I don't even know where that is. Um, but uh, who knows? No one knows where Chris will be next. But, but tonight, I'm excited to not just hear uh, about Chris's love for people, but also we get the chance to hear about his love for God and what that means to him. So if you join me in uh, giving a warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Sherman. Well, that is me. I am Chris Sherman, and I am happy to be here with you all tonight. Uh, I want to just start off by saying uh, thank you to everyone who's here tonight. Um, I've just felt incredibly uh, loved and supported in the last couple of days getting ready for tonight, and it, uh, it really makes it a lot easier to get up here and share with you, uh, share with you guys when I feel like it's just a big group of friends out here. So uh, really, thank you. Um, I do appreciate it. As Mike said, um, my name is Chris. I'm an intern here this year. I, uh, I don't really have a lot of time to introduce myself, so I'm just going to give you a quick rundown, and then we're going to get right into it. So I'm from Spokane, like Mike said, born and raised, went to Mead High School, graduated in 2006. I have uh, two parents, Rick and Karen. They're great. I love them. Uh, my brother is here tonight. His name is Rick. He is roughly four years older than me, and his wife, Thea, is also here, and they've been, uh, both my parents and uh, my brother and his wife have been incredibly um, helpful to me growing up and just learning about life. So I, uh, I can't say enough about my family. Um, I came to UW in 2006, went to the Jackson School of International Studies, did the general track there, focused on, uh, yeah, if there's any SAS majors out here. You know, I'm, I'm living proof you're going to be okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I went to the, the Jackson School, graduated just last June, and uh, now I'm here interning, and I love it. And I'm here to uh, talk to you guys tonight about Revelation 21 and 22. So let's get down to it. Um, if you've been here at all this year, you know we've been talking about Revelation all year so far. And uh, I hope this isn't kind of sacrilegious to say, but it, Revelation is a weird book. Um, it is full of all kinds of images and symbols and numbers that are just kind of, I don't even know. I just get lost and I just stop reading it sometimes. So um, <laughs> honestly, it's, it's scary sometimes. I remember as a kid reading a book and just closing it and being like, I don't even want to know. I'm, I'm done. Like... <laughs> This is really scary to me, and I just want to go to bed and not even think about it anymore. 
So it's, it's funny to me that I'm speaking on the last two chapters because I don't know that I've actually ever read them because I've never made it through the, the book of Revelation because I always get so scared right in the middle. So um, <laughs> It's funny because the, these last two chapters are incredibly hopeful and hope-filled. Um, it, it's a fitting end to not only the last book of the Bible, one that's full of all this stuff that kind of makes you wor- like worried about, about life in the future, but a fitting into the Bible. It's, it's incredibly uh, hopeful. And that's why I'm excited to get up here and share with you guys tonight. Um, I think when you think of heaven, you think of, obviously, hope for the future. You know, yeah, it's going to be great when we get to heaven. But the reason I'm really excited to get up here and talk tonight is that I find a lot of hope for the present in this book, too, which I think is overlooked sometimes. Um, so I'm excited. Uh, but there's two things I want to tell you first before we get into it. Number one is that when I'm speaking, uh, I don't know if it's an insecurity or if it's a genuine desire to know if what I'm saying is making sense. But I might ask you, does that make sense or, you know, something like that. And feel free to like shake your head or say yes or no if it doesn't, because I, I want to know if what I'm saying is actually hitting home with anyone. Um, so please feel free to interact with me as I speak. And uh, second of all, before I start, I just want to pray for us all, especially myself, because I'm going to need it. So uh, God, thank you for tonight, and uh, thank you for everyone who's in here. I just pray that you would relieve any, any stress tonight, God. Uh, Calm my nerves, take me out of this equation, God. I pray that you would be the one speaking here. Um, I thank you that my challenge tonight is figuring out how to express the amazing amount of hope that I find in these two chapters and figuring out how to contain that with my limited language, God. I pray that you would uh, remove any pressure I feel to say anything impressive or profound tonight and that you would just help me be faithful to this text and to you. I thank you for this night. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so I suppose if we're going to look at chapters 21 and 22, we should go ahead and take a look at some of the text. I'm not going to read through it all with you, but um, if I could get just the verses 1 through 7 up, I'm going to read them on here, and you guys can follow along, starting with verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So even in these first seven verses of this, these two chapters, it's just in your face how much hope there is and how many things we have to look forward to for the future and for uh, eventually arriving at heaven. Um, I think the way I'm going to approach this tonight is I'm going to look first at what, what stands out, what's very obvious, uh, that is things that are, we can look forward to. And... Um, kind of look through these first and then get into what I see about the present, though, where I find hope in the present in these verses. So the first thing I see is in verse 3. It says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he shall live with them. Um, I don't know about you guys, but that's pretty hopeful to me. Um, God will be with us, God himself. He will be our God, and we will be his people. It says later on in chapter 22, verse 4, that we will see his face. So I'm assuming there will be some kind of physical presence there, God in physical form, if we can see his face. Um, I find this hopeful because how many times have we we been here going, I wish I knew if God was real. I wish I could just see him. 
I wish I could just have a conversation and look at him like I see you in front of me. We will know. We will see him. He will be right there. We will see his face. I find a lot of hope in that. I find a lot of hope for feeling like, yes, like <laughs> I was right, and I put my faith in the right area. Um, that just brings me a lot of hope. I hope it does for you. Um, also interesting, in, in verse 6, God says, He is the Alpha and the Omega, meaning that he was there at the beginning and he will be there at the end. I think um, this gives us a different picture than we often get of the end of the world. We, we watch movies and stuff, all these apocalyptic movies of just this awful ending to the world. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called The Road, but it's probably one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. And it's about basically the end of human existence, and it just sucks. It's like, wow, I hope I'm dead by this point. Um, but I think what God is saying here is he's saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I will be there at the end. And I don't know about you, but if God is at the end of this, then that gives me a little bit of hope. That tells me if God's at the end of this, then maybe the end isn't as bad as we all think. Maybe there's something to look forward to in the end of all this. Something to hope for, right? Verse 4, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Uh, jackpot. Um, <laughs> honestly, there will be no, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. God will wipe the tears from our eyes. How consoling would that be for God, the creator of the universe, to say, it is okay. It really is okay. I'm here. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty blessed to, up to this point in my life to have never really lost someone really close to me. I've had some family friends pass away in tragic fashion, but not anyone in my family while I've been alive. And, uh, you know, I know there's people out here who have experienced that, death of someone who's really close to them. And I, I can't imagine how hard that is. Um, that, that won't happen. That won't happen anymore. We won't have to mourn the loss of loved ones. We won't cry. There won't be pain. Emotional pain, physical pain. I mean, I think even down to the small things like pain after a workout. I mean, that won't exist anymore. I don't know, I'm pretty psyched about that. Um, later on, chapter 22, verse 3, it says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything. And I think... This is referring to the curse that uh, God put on uh, both men, women, and snakes. Um, in Genesis, after the fall, he said, you know, cursed is the ground because of you. And for women, it was childbirth is going to be horrible. And it is. I mean, I haven't experienced it, but whatever I have seen, I do not want to be around for that. Um, we, will, we will no longer have to live with the curse that came with the fall. Um, I, I really don't know what that's going to look like. I'm assuming childbirth will actually probably be fun. Um, I, don't, I don't really know. Uh, maybe gardening will be a little easier. I don't know. It's going to be pretty cool, though. There's no curse. Uh, further on, verses 9 through 27, we get this long description of this new holy city, uh, basically what will be the place where we dwell. And I'm not going to go into it because there's all kinds of things in it, but I think essentially what all these verses are telling us is that we are going to live in this perfectly complete, not to mention beautifully, radiantly beautiful city. It goes into all these things, all these descriptions. The first thing you read, you'll notice it, it talks about these 12 gates, which um, there's three on each side of the city. It's a square. Um, it's actually a cube. We'll get to that in a second. But there's three on each side, north, south, east, and west. There's 12 foundation stones holding up the walls. Um, and I think the thing to note here is that the number 12... Revelation is full of numbers that mean different things. Number 12 is a symbol for completeness. And so when I, when I hear of 12 gates and 12 foundation stones, I think of a city that is completely open, 
Um, 12 gates, it's, it's open, and there's 12 of them, completely open. Um, 12 foundation stones meaning that the walls are completely stable. Basically, this city will never, will never be closed, and it will never fall. It will never be conquered. Um, the city, you refer on, the city says it has three dimensions. It actually has a length. It's as wide as it is long and, it, and high. So there's three, you get a three dimensions, length, width, and height, which you can imagine in your head is a cube, which you don't, I, first time I read it, I was like, well, I didn't even notice that. But it's weird to think of a city being a cube. You think, how can anyone know how high a city is? Well, this isn't so much supposed to be a description of, of the height of the city. It's, it's to give us an image of the city being actually a cube, because a cube, um, if, if you know this, is in ancient times, I guess, supposed to be the perfect shape. And that's why the Holy of Holies in the, in the Jewish temple is shaped like a cube. It is the place where God's presence dwells directly. And it's, uh, I think this is what they're saying, is that God's presence will be in the city. It will be like a giant Holy of Holies where we will all live. So God's presence, again, will be there, and we will li- get to live in direct presence with God. Further on, it says, all the gates will remain open. It will never close because it will never be night there. And I think what this is trying to say is that they have nothing to fear. I mean, why would you close your gates at night? You don't want weird things coming into the city. Well, here there is no night. You never have to close the gates, so we'll never have anything to fear. So, I mean, right off the bat, several things um, to be hopeful for in the future. And and I'm not trying to say that these aren't important. These are incredibly important, and these are things that we can be excited about. But I think too often this passage is read, and only in in this um, this mindset of looking forward and thinking, gosh, it's going to be great when we get there. I can't wait for this, for this future um, in which we have all these things. And, yeah, I, I can't either. I'm not trying to say it's not a big deal. But I think too often we, we get so focused on the future and what Christianity offers us later that so many people are kind of wondering, what about right now? What do we have to hope for right now in all this? And I think this passage, as we go back through it, we'll notice that it offers us just as much hope for the present as it does for the future. I think this, this hope, in my opinion, is found in verse 5, when it says, chapter 20, verse 5, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. So we know what to look forward to in the future. But what about in the present? First of all, I want to examine, what does it mean to be made new? God says, I am making everything new. Um, I kind of geeked out here, as voice said, and looked up the Greek translation. And, and the Greek word here is, is kainos which is really actually hard to define. It was weird. It, it kind of was an ambiguous end of, uh, definition. Um, basically, the best way to define, it, to define it, I found, is to say it's something we've never seen or heard of. So God is making everything into something we've never seen or heard of. Okay? So what does that mean uh, for us specifically? Let's talk, about, let's talk about for us. What does that mean for us? Are we going to look different? Are we going to be taller? Are we going to glow? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I guess I take this word, new, kainos, to mean not so much different in the sense that like, I'll have four arms or wings or something and be this weird creature. You know, I, think, I, I personally think God knew what he was doing the first time he made us. I don't think he's sitting up there going, should have given him four arms. <laughs> um, I think what this means is that God is making, making things right. He's making things fresh. And in a sense, he's making us free of sin, free of the decay that comes with sin. He's making us into these things that are unworn, unused, untattered. He's making us new. He's making us fresh. And while we do have one example, I guess, of something that lived free of sin, and that was Jesus, for the rest of us, a life without sin is something that can't be done. It's unheard of for one of us to live completely free of sin. So this would be something. This would be kainos. This would be completely new for us to be made free of sin, right? 
So I guess what I, when I read this, I think God isn't saying I'm going to make you like weirdly different. I'm saying, God is saying, I'm making things right. I'm making things free of sin, free of the decay that comes with sin. So now that we've established, what, is this, what does it mean to be made new, or at least what I think it be, means to be made new? Um, I want to look at something else. For, for you English majors out there, you might recognize something about the sentence uh, that, that's interesting. Um, when the one sitting on the throne, presumably God, speaks, he uses the, uh, the present progressive tense, um, which, go ahead and throw up that definition. I just want to read to this real quick. It's a tense um, used to express action that is ongoing at the time of utterance. God says, I am making everything new. He doesn't say, I will make everything new, or I did make everything new. He says, I am making everything new. Action that is ongoing at the time of utterance. This present progressive tense is interesting to me because it's a tense that can refer to both the present and the future. For example, earlier today I could have been having a conversation in which I said, I am speaking at the end. And I could have been correct. I would have been correct. In the same way I can stand right here in front of you and say, I'm speaking at the end. And I'm also correct. Both statements are true. It's kind of ambiguous, I know, but usually when someone uses the present progressive tense, they clarify their statement by indicating some sense of time. So earlier today I would have said, I'm speaking at the end tonight. And right now I would say, I'm speaking at the end right now. And that helps clarify. However, you know, well, that helps. It helps for you to know what I'm speaking about or what I'm saying. In both situations, my statement is true whether or not I clarify my time. I'm speaking at the end. And I think the same truth, the same truth of both in the present and the future is, is what we find in the statement of God's. I am making everything new. So we look at, if it's true in both the present and the future, so let's look back for a second. So John's revelation was recorded in approximately 90 AD. I don't know exactly the date. But it's obvious that this vision is one of the future because it's one where the, God rids the world of sin and we enter in this perfect dwelling with him. Um, it hasn't happened yet that I know of, and so that's why I'm pretty sure it's a vision of the future, something that has to happen still. Thus, you know, I'm confident this, this is something in the future. So we have, this, we have this weird dynamic, and where it can get complicated is trying to figure out, is God telling John in AD 90, I am making everything new? Or is he speaking to John, talking about in this vision of the, of the future? I am making everything new in this future that is this vision. Um, honestly, I don't know. I don't know if, he's talk, if he means to John in AD 90 or if he means sometime in the future. But I guess my question is, does it make a difference? The manner in which John speaks, what, man, sorry, the manner in which God speaks to John suggests to me that it's true at both times, both in 8090 and in this future when heaven and earth are made new. In fact, I'm, I'm actually confident that my statement is true at both times. And I believe it's true to be, it is true everywhere in between as well, and that includes right now. And I believe this because at any of these three points in time, 8090, right now, today, or when this new heaven and this new earth are made and brought down to earth. Sorry. Um, the victory has already been won. Okay? Jesus won in AD 33. The second Jesus was resurrected, our chance at salvation was secured. The option is on the table, no question, as long as, at least as long as we live on this earth. Okay? That's what, that's what Jesus did. He at least gave us the chance as long as we live. Because the option is secured then, and because I think God loves us so much, once we choose to accept this love, to accept this, this fact that Jesus died for us to, to ensure that we have the chance to be in relationship with God forever, God is able and he's willing to begin working in us 
to bring us to a point where we are capable of dwelling with him. He doesn't have to wait until we get to heaven to make us new. He is able and willing to do that right now. Jesus made it, made it possible, and God's love is where the willingness comes in. God, when, he, when God says, I am making everything new, I believe he's telling us, as, in, as indicated by the tense in which he speaks, that he's making things both new, both in the future and right now. And it's totally possible because of what Jesus did. Not just when we get to heaven. Right now, God is making us new. Um, maybe the best way to think about this is, is a little analogy I have, and it's actually an analogy that's, that's right in the text for us. So bear with me for a second. Um, the new city, this new Jerusalem, the holy city, the new heaven, basically, is twice referred to as the bride of God. Verse 2, you saw it, and then again in verse 9, which we didn't see. Throughout the Bible, the church is also referred to as the bride of God. Uh, you can see it in a couple places. Isaiah 54 or 2 Corinthians 11 are two places you can find this, this imagery. And what I think Revelation is trying to show us is that the city represents the bride. They call it the bride in this text because it is the place where the church will dwell. It is we who live in the city that are God's bride, not the city itself. Kind of the same way that the church is not the building, it's the people in it. Okay? Does that make sense? The city is the bride because that's where we are. We are the church. We are the bride. And that's where we will dwell. So if we are the bride, and this is where you have to bear with me, then we can consider ourselves in a relationship with God and a romantic relationship at that. The tendency, though, is to see this as some kind of long-distance relationship where we're just sitting, waiting around, hoping to be reunited with our significant other. Um, maybe some of you know, but most of you probably don't. Uh, I am I'm currently in a relationship. Yes, there is a girl out there. There is a girl out there who's willing to put up with me. She is lovely. Um, we've, been not, we've been together for about a year and a half now, seven months of which has been spent in various long-distance settings, both when I was on deputation and I was in Tajikistan and then previously when she was actually in Washington, D.C. So while uh, I know that there are people out there who spend their entire dating relationship and maybe even some or most or all of their engaged relationship in a long-distance setting, I think... Seven months is at least enough experience for me to be able to speak into the difficulties of long-distance relationships. And let me tell you, they are difficult if you've never done it. If you don't have to, I wouldn't recommend it, that's for sure. Um, you know, it's weird because you're able to communicate with this person, you know, on the phone or through Skype, which is a great invention because you can see them. But actually, I found that those things make it, especially Skype, makes it so much more difficult because it's like, I can see you, and I can talk to you, but you're so far away from me still. You are a good 3,000 miles away from me, but I can still see you. So it's actually, it's kind of torturous. Because it's like, I just want to be able to, like, hug you or kiss you, but I can't because you're in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but I can see you. What is going on? It's, it's, it's an amazing technology, but it's also very torturous. Um, you know, and you just have this feeling of, like, I just want to be with them, you know? When will we be back together? When will we be reunited? And I think this is how it can feel with God sometimes. We can see him, we can communicate with him through prayer, and sometimes he, he reveals himself to us through whatever means he chooses, really. I mean, he could do it however he wanted. He could, in physical form or in a vision or in a dream, it, it's really up to him. You know, we can see him and we experience him sometimes, but at the same time we feel like, gosh, he's still, you know, it's, he's so far away. Like, when will, we, when will we be together? And I think, 
I think what this text is trying to show us is that we are already united. The relationship with God is a done deal. Okay? We are already the bride. Jesus' death and resurrection and our acknowledgement of that was, were the vows, if you were to consider this as some kind of wedding. His death and resurrection and our acknowledgement of that were the vows, not just said, but acted out, at least on Jesus' part. You know, until death do us part. Well, he died, and that couldn't even keep us apart. We're just waiting to be pronounced at this point. Okay? And just like any other relationship, there is a give and take here. I don't... The God I know, the God I see in the Bible, is not a lover who sits back and waits for his beloved to do all of the work. Okay? God, like any good spouse, I think, is proactive in preparing his love for life with him. We see this most vividly through his son, Jesus. Jesus was God's way of saying, I care about you right now. I don't just care about you in the future. I care about you right now. And I'm going to, I care about you so much right now that I'm going to make sure that you have the chance to be with me forever before you get to the point where you, are, you, know, where you actually meet me. Okay? So we know there's a give and take here. And if you've tuned out, tune back in real quick, because this is, this is, this is what I see the give and take as, okay? I'm going to say this once, and I'll say it again because it's kind of long. We do our, this give and take, I think, looks something like this. We do our best to be faithful to God and to live our lives to glorify Him. And in return, He has secured our chance at relationship with Him through Jesus in order that we can begin, that He can begin to make us new the moment we choose to be in that relationship. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time. So we do our best to be faithful to God and live our lives to glorify Him. And in return, He has secured our chance at relationship with Him through Jesus in order that He can begin to make us new the moment we choose to be in that relationship. He can do it right now. The second you choose to be in that relationship, He doesn't have to wait till you get to heaven. He can do it right now. We are being made new by God right now. And we'll continue to be made new by God in the future. So take heart. This is, this, is, this is the message I find for the present. Take heart. You are being made new right now. If you struggle in life, take heart. You're being made new. If you struggle with depression, take heart. You're being made new right now. Right now. It's not something you just have to bear. It, yes, it's difficult, I know. Things like depression, things like you struggle with body image or self-worth, or your faith in God. Whatever you struggle with. It doesn't, I'm not trying to say it doesn't hurt right now, and it's not hard. But take heart, because you're being made new as we speak. God cares about you now. He doesn't just care about you when you get to heaven. You are being made new, so take heart. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the fact that you care about us right now, and you don't just sit back and wait for us to get to heaven before you start working in us. I thank you for the the hope that is in this message, not only for the future, which is very clear, and we all look forward to these things, God, but for the present and the hope we can find right now. I thank you for that. I thank you that you're not a lover who sits back and just waits for us to do everything. Please help us to know that. Please help us to take heart and to know that you are working in us right now and you want us to be made right, to be made new, to be made complete. You want that for us, God. Help us to know that. Be with us as we go through these things, God. It's in your name I pray. Amen.